0: So welcome to the Torch of Progress. This is the speaker series uh, for our uh, high school level course, Progress Studies for Young Scholars. Progress Studies for Young Scholars is uh, a course in the history of technology, uh, an overview of human progress, in, at least in, in technology and industry. Um, it originally ran over the summer, uh, this past summer, as a uh, summer program and is now being run this fall. Uh, as uh, an after-school program or as uh, part of the virtual school of um, the Academy of Thought and Industry. Um, You can find out more about it at progressstudies.school. I am your host, Jason Crawford. Uh, I run the uh, website, The Roots of Progress, uh, which you can find at rootsofprogress.org where I write about the history of technology and the philosophy of progress. Uh, And our guest today is uh, Adam Mossoff, professor at the uh, uh, Scalia Law School at George Mason University um, and an expert in patents and intellectual property. He is also the founder of the um, uh, Center for the Protection of Intellectual Property um, at George Mason. So uh, welcome Adam.
1: Thank you, thank you, Jason. It's great to be here.
0: All right, we've got a few people filtering in, but um, let's just get started because I'm sure we've got a lot to talk about. So um, uh, we're going to focus most of the discussion today on patents. Let's just begin at the beginning. Um, what w- what are the origin of patents? Where did they come from?
1: Oh, uh, it's a really great question. Um, yes, in the beginning, there was a person who invented something, you know? um, so... It's a really great question um, because even the term patent is very historically contingent and people might wonder why do we call these things patents? <clears throat> so it starts in uh, feudal England, um, uh, hundreds of years ago um, the, uh, and the crown uh, exercised uh, its royal prerogative, its, its, its powers as the crown um, by granting favors to people um, and, and engaging in various economic and other domestic policies to promote the realm. Um, and the legal mechanism that the Crown did this through was by writing these very formal letters that were known as letters patent. So, and, and it was uh, the reason why they were called letters patent is because was, uh, <clears throat> at that time uh, the English legal system followed uh, what was called law French, they had been heavily influenced by. Uh, the French language through the Norman invasion of 1066, and um, and so the, so in French the adjective comes after the noun. Um, so, patent here was being used as simply uh, as an adjective of open. It's an open letter, so you would get a letter from the crown that you could run a mill or start a um, or, or start a, um, a, a a commercial area, a, you know, a, a trading area or start a business, and. Um, and, um, and, and the crown used letters patent generally for issuing all sorts of uh, a, a grants of royal privilege. In fact, our property rights and land all start with, with letters patent as well it's grants to various feudal lords that eventually evolves into our property rights system we have today. And um, so starting in the 16th or 17th century, the crown starts using these these letters patent actually for, uh, issue, granting them to inventors um, to advance the economic development of the realm, and this eventually evolves into a more formalized legal process, one not rife with royal discretion and, and the abuses that the crown uh, would inherently bring to it by rewarding them to court favorites um, by restricting it to people like who are inventors and constraining it by statutes and court decisions and things of that sort um, and like good Americans, you know when, when, when we saw letters patent, we said, "Oh well, this is English, so clearly the the word that matters here, the noun is patent, not letter. <laughs> so, and so this is how we came to be called these things patents. Uh, and of course, we uh, Americanized them as well and call them patents, not patents. Um, and um, and the, the rest is history.
0: <laughs> so it's really interesting. You know, I always assumed before I learned the history of this that, oh, well, it must have been that, uh, you know, at one point, inventions were not protected, and then we created patents in order to protect them. Uh, or you know, at one point, property you know land was not protected. Then we created property you know land rights or property rights in order to protect them. And it seems like it was actually more of a. Uh, there at one point, all kinds of stuff could be protected sort of arbitrarily by uh, royal decree. And what we actually did was we um, uh, we we carved away some of that royal power and we left certain things uh, certain protections in place. So talk a little bit about. Um, this evolution from uh, patents as just kind of a, a royal prerogative to mm-hmm. patents as a formalized process and ultimately as a right.
1: Oh yes, how did uh, that happen? Yes, this is uh, uh, excellent, and it's uh, the, the historical development is really fascinating. And also, it's important to recognize even before I start talking about the history of patents that um, <clears throat> you know you always have to think as compared to what. And so, it wasn't even true that there weren't protections for. Inventions before patent systems started to evolve as we now know them, starting in the late 17th and 18th centuries. Um, Before that, you know, people still invented and they protected their inventions, but they did through through things like guilds and through through what we now call trade secrets. So they kept things secret. And so, actually, one of the contributions and one of the important aspects of patents is that they disclose the invention. Um, And so, it takes things out of secrecy because this is one of the things that drives further on innovation and more commercial development is that when you have knowledge out uh, out uh, in the public and even when it's owned in fact when it is in fact owned that's what facilitates people to transact with each other and to trade with it and to develop it further and build upon it which is what the patent system promotes as per the authorization of the constitution to promote the progress of the useful arts and science. Um, so, but to, but the specific, so it's always you know, important to recognize that, you know, there, there are different types of ways you can protect innovations. Um, you know, in fact, different ways you ta- protect all types of creative work, copyright protects the written words, um, marks trademarks, tra- trademarks protect, you know, what we call corporate goodwill. And I think the important point is the legal system provide the full penelope of protections for the different types of creative endeavors that people are engaging in because they create different types of assets with different types of values. And the important point is, is that they get the respective protection they need. And so a lot of people sometimes think about, well, patents aren't necessary for, for X. And then they conclude from that, ergo, you don't need intellectual property at all. And that's not necessarily the case. It may just be exactly true that patents aren't necessary for X, even though you do still need intellectual property protections. And that's why we have things like trademark and trade secrecy and copyright and other types of intellectual property protections. Um, and But they all followed this, uh, well, at least copyright and patents did uh, because uh, trademarks and trade secrets li- evolved later when we had uh, a more formal legal system in the 19th century and we weren't, we weren't living under uh, a, uh, the royal system in England. But originally, both copyrights and, and patents, but patents more uh, dramatically arose out of these grants of royal privilege, um, which were issued entirely by, at the discretion of the crown. And, of course, so they were abused by the crown. Um, and in being issued to court favorites, and as ways of you know garnering political favoritism and nepotism, and all of the things that you come to expect with unlimited uh, power being exercised by uh, a monarch. And in fact, the patent system was very much part and parcel of the constitutional struggles in England in the 17th century. Um, and um, in fact, the Statute of Monopolies of 1624, which is the statute which which is the first statute um, that reflects some aspects of what we now re- think of when we think of patents uh, was enacted to restrict and restrain the crown in, in issuing these patents these letters patent really for willy-nilly purposes um, and um, through the process that starts in England um, you know they soon start to become um, understood as legal entitlements that are actually uh, res- uh, uh, construed, interpreted, and enforced by the common law courts. They're even taken out of the prerogative courts, um, <clears throat> the, uh, the Privy Council, which was the, the court that heard all disputes resolving, uh, 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 arising from the, the crown's uh, uh, use of its royal prerogative power, and were put into the common law courts, which adjudicated the common law rights of citizens uh, or subjects in England. Um, and then when, uh, but, the, but patents were still viewed as grants conferred by the crown in England. Um, and so they still had an aspect of them that was viewed not as a full property right, but as um, something that really furthered the economic and other regulatory purposes of the realm. And, um, and there were still restrictions imposed upon them. Um, royal grants or privilege from the crown were granted to the individual, the subject. You got a letter to you as an individual from the crown. The letter wasn't to your children and it wasn't to a business partner, it was to you. And if the crown bestowed a gift on you, that wasn't something you could then transfer to someone else, a business partner, or bequeath through a will to your children. So really true, they truly weren't property rights in the kind of classic sense of what we think of a property right is a legal right that secures to you something a value that you can acquire through inventive labors or create other productive labors and then use and dispose of as you will as you choose with other people Um, and this was part and parcel of the American uh, Revolution not just generally but in patent law a lot of people don't realize that um, the patent system was part and parcel of the American Revolution um, that that this radical transformation that Americans undertook in the 1770s and 1780s in reconceptualizing the purpose of government to secure rights, limiting the government to that function, institutionalizing the rule of law, and having all of the actions uh, of the government be constrained and defined by the rule of law through set statutes and court decisions was applied to the patent system. And so taken completely out of the domain of Discretionary authority by, well, the executive, uh, who was our, who was our, you know, our, our um, analog to the closest analog to the crown. Um, and in fact, there were some people who were at, who were saying we should put the power to secure patents. We should put that in the executive branch because that's where it was in England. It was a, it was it was a power still under the crown. And, um, and the framers in the Constitutional Convention of 77 said, no, we're going to make this one of the powers delegated to Congress because Congress is the representative of the people and it's the job of Congress to enact the statutes and the rule, create the rules to define and protect people's rights of life, liberty, and property. And patents are part and parcel of that. And so, um, so pat- our patent system from the get-go was defined generally as a property rights system in the same way that we would protect property rights in farms and in other types of goods. And you see that that comparison in the early uh, court opinions made often by judges and other legal officials, that patents arise from the same type of productive labors um, that you see farmers engaging in and other people engaging in when they raise crops and and, and flocks and, um, and that they should be secured in that. And that is the job of the patent system to do that.
0: Great I would love to talk um uh, in, in a little bit i'll get to more I'd love to hear more about the u s patent system and how it differs um from Europe. I want to go back to a thing or two that you said um you mentioned that uh, so before patents there were different ways that people tried to protect their um uh you know their 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 secrets or their inventions and you mentioned that one of the ways was through guilds. Can you yes. talk about that? How would the guilds be used to protect uh, uh
1: yes the uh, uh, so the guilds um so the, one one of the functions of guilds why guilds arose was in response to the fact that craft knowledge and technology was very valuable and they understood the problem that if if, if the information is leaked and gets out then the people who retain that information have that information now have lost the value of the resource because it's now freely accessible and usable and it can't be constrained and, and it's, it's harder to stop other people from using it so one of the actual original governing functions of the guild system was to ensure the secrecy and ensure the internal protection of the various technical arts that comprised the skills of the guild members, whether it was in, you know, whether it was in carpentry or whether it was in masonry or something of this sort. And the guild systems protected this, th- you know, through their own internal rules. Um, guilds in some countries were formal legal institutions, but but more often than not, they were private institutions. Um, they were private associations. And they enforced their rules as, uh, through private uh, enforcement remedies. Um, we in the law today refer to this obliquely as self-help. Um, everyone else would refer to this simply as vigilantism or violence. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and so if you, and if you broke the rule of your guild, you would be uh, usually beaten up kicked out of the guild and sometimes guilt um, and, um, and, and because that was the only way that they could enforce the secrecy. Um, and, th- you know, they recognized after several hundred years, I mean, as part of the enlightenment, as part of the development of the enlightenment that, you know, having, uh, creating other alternative legal mechanisms for protecting the, the fruits of inventive and creative labors, um, while at the same time Distributing knowledge and, um, in a more peaceful and economically efficient and, prog- and, and and productive manner would be good for everyone <laughs> would lead to flourishing lives and flourishing societies and that was in part and parcel some of the impetus for thinking about taking this existing device that the crown was using for, for the you know, for personal pur- purposes, purposes or at least the economic the, the, the rationalization for the letters patent for inventions and technologies was that this was just an economic policy, just domestic policy development of the realm, grant someone a monopoly so that they'll develop the, uh, develop the technology. And they start to think about, well, we have this kind of semi-existing legal mechanism. We can convert it into something that actually will serve other purposes and better purposes, both for individuals and society at large.
0: So if I'm a blacksmith, let's say, uh, and I, in the, whatever, 1500s, maybe um, I am part of the blacksmith's guild, uh, suppose I devise uh, or somehow come up with a better way to make steel and I, or, you know, and I can make now tougher steel, better swords. Um, so one thing I can do is I can keep that a secret. Don't tell anybody how I do it. And now I can command a higher price for my wares, presumably because they're higher quality. Would there be, is there another option? So through the guild, is there some, I mean, if I tell the guild, maybe maybe we'll keep it a secret within the guild, but all my fellow blacksmiths now benefit from my discovery. Is there a way to get, you know, is there was there a way within the guild system to get kind of paid for that even by your fellow blacksmiths? Or like, could
1: you no, get a reward? I don't know. I don't, uh, I, I must confess, I don't know all of the intricate details of the different ways in which the guilds functioned and how, and, and how they worked. I, I know them only generally <clears throat> as an institutional alternative to systems like patent systems and copyright systems and trademark systems. Um, Makes because sense. The, because... Because if you don't provide, the point is, is that humans will create the institutions and and other mechanisms, both formal and informal, to protect information or protect the values that they're creating. If uh, you know, if you don't provide uh, the type of protection that you that should be provided to them, um, and so so it's an advance. And, and you know, and it, and and more importantly, as you said, like. Regardless of whether you shared it with the guild or not, the point is, is it was still kept secret. Whether it was kept secret to you or it was kept secret to the guild, and in fact, this is pro- probably why a lot, you know, the development of technology and innovations was largely flat <laughs> for a very long time. In addition to many other social, economic, and and and, and technological factors, was because if so- because. You know, people were, were were human beings. We're naturally creative. We we think about things, but new information and new ways of doing things died with people um, because they did. They either kept it secret to themselves, or it was kept secret to the guild, and the guild didn't. Guilds weren't designed to promote innovation. Guilds were designed to keep inf- information internal to them only. So um, so so the guild didn't have any incentive to try to build on top of any new information either. If someone happened to do that and the guild developed it, then that that, that happened, but. But that wasn't part and parcel what happens. It's really it's really significant that you know p- patents, and this is one of the reasons why you sometimes hear, well, patents are a blockade, they stop people from innovating. It's like actually patents are the exact opposite. It's one of the ways, the reason why patent lawyers sometimes scratch their heads at at, at that framing of patents in, in the policy debates or by or by people more generally. It's kind of, it's 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 more rhetoric than reality. Because the whole purpose of patent, one of the, I shouldn't say the whole purpose, one of the, one of the functions of patents is to publish the knowledge. Patents are published. They're made public. Anyone can read them and anyone can, can, can build off of them and invent on top of that, those inventions. And in fact, that's one of the reasons why patents are published. So um, one of the reasons is so that people can innovate on top of it. And then if you create an innovation on top of a prior innovation, then you enter into what's called a license agreement. You go back to the original inventor and say, well, I need to use your invention in my invention. It's, it's in your interest because you're going to make more money. And this person says, "Awesome." <laughs> and, you exchange, and and therefore you enter into a, on contract that we call an intellectual property circles, uh, a license. And, and I'm not being bombastic. I mean, trillions of dollars exchange hands every year uh, through intellectual property transactions like that that maximize value, that bring that, that, that further spur in innovative developments and actually convert inventions that, are in la- that occur in labs and in garages. Actually, into usable technologies by consumers that sold in the marketplace.
0: Um, what about uh, were there other, you, you mentioned about sort of the history of England, were there other um, uh, precursors to patents or anything? Uh, I've heard some things about perhaps maybe 15th century Venice, mm-hmm. you know, kind of Renaissance Italy, like around there. Where else in, in history do we see any kind of precursors to patents?
1: So the so the earliest that you see uh, to what we now have as patents, the modern patent system, which really doesn't develop until the, into, as I mentioned, until the 18th century. In fact, the American patent system became the model that the rest of the world copied in the 19th century, in mm. part because of the success of America. Um, you, you know, the patent system was part and parcel of the tremendous uh, economic growth in this country in the 19th century, um, and so. But the earliest precursor to that the, you see that's closer to that is is Venice. Venice. Uh, Enacted a a statute um, that uh, that was something like a patent. It provided some protection uh, for an invention, legal protection that was term limited. But it was not what we now know as patents. It was it was it was it had elements of what we now think of as patents. So it had superficial similarities, but it really did. But what we now have, what we now identify as patent systems, are relatively new. Just like most property rights and most kind of uh, other types of legal and corporate um rights that we have are relatively new. Um you know this is a, another common complaint that people have oh well patents are very new they're just a couple hundred years old this is what makes them suspicious or compared to property rights in land it's like well property rights and land only evolved a several hundred years before patents did. I mean in the grand scheme of human history they're both pretty new. <laughs> I mean property rights in land is we now know it fact doesn't in fact the modern property right in land what lawyers call a fee simple uh, again, law French, it would be a simple fee uh, uh, with the adjective coming after, um, really doesn't come into existence as we know until about the 17th century. Um, so, um, so these are all relatively modern uh, developments that went hand in hand with kind of the, the Enlightenment, the scientific revolution, um, and, the, and and very importantly, the philosophical revolution that was, that was part and parcel of the Enlightenment. In the 17th century, that you saw um, with uh, philosophers like John Locke, and that spread through political institutions and created the foundations for, of course, the framers in this country, the, found- the founders who created the United States of America.
0: Um, so let's talk more about that. The U.S. patent system. Uh, what else was sort of new or special about it? What was different from the European system?
1: So, <clears throat> um, so the the. Uh, so the U.S. patent system. Let me um, step back. Sorry. So the reason why we have a patent system in this country is because um, um, <clears throat> it's in the Constitution. Um, it's in Article One, Section Eight, which is the section of the Constitution that where all the powers that are delegated to Congress are listed. Um, so, along with authorizing Congress to create an army and a navy, to create a post office, uh, to enter into treaties with the Indian tribes and other foreign nations uh congress is authorized to uh, uh create a patent and copyright system um to uh it's authorized to promote the progress of science and the, of the arts uh by ex- securing to inventors and authors an exclusive right in their discoveries and writings and um and the framers took this very seriously um some of the very first legislation enacted by the first congress in 1790 uh, was the Patent Act of 1790 and the Copyright Act of 1790. I mean, and to put this into context, this is a time period in the 1790s when Congress was spent months debating about how they were going to refer to President Washington. Were they going to refer to him as his excellency or your presidency or your honor? I mean, this is when they were still debating and it took years to resolve where were they going to put the capital? whether it's you know, is it going to stay in New York? Is it going to, you know, Philadelphia? Where is it going to go? They immediately enacted a copyright and patent statute. Um, they understood that this was foundational to protecting uh, the rights of innovators and creators and that it was important for the growth of our country um, and, the, and the flourishing society that we would become. Um, and, um, um, and in fact, um, it bears noting that, uh, you know, it's just an interesting uh, uh, point to make as well. Um, the Patent and Copyright Clause in Article 1, Section 8, and it's Clause 8 in, in, the, um, in, uh, in, in Article 1, Section 8, um, is the only place in the constitution proper. So the constitution written at the constitutional convention of 1787, where you find the word right even used, um, where Congress is authorized to secure the exclusive right to inventors and authors, um, their discoveries and writings. Um, and, you know, so pre-bill of rights, only, the, the, the document only has one place where it mentions the, the word right, and that's in the copyright and patent clause, um, or patent and copyright clause. It's, uh, yeah, they, they're synonyms. And so, um, so it, it again, shows you the seriousness in which they took this. The fact that they put it in Congress, as I mentioned, took it away from the executive, which was the English model, that it was primarily in the executive branch and it, it, was, part, it was part and parcel of the Crown's powers, um, that they recognized this as a right. And that, was, and that they recognized this as something that was, that was going to be secured through statutes that would be defined through institutions governed by the rule of law. So Congress enacting the statutes, but also creating, they created initially a review board uh, that had, uh, that was staffed by various uh, cabinet members. Thomas Jefferson was one of the, one of the people initially as, as a secretary of state who reviewed patent applications. They very quickly recognized they needed to create a separate agency for this. So they created the patent office. Um, and in fact, the patent office was the very first federal agency ever created uh, in our government. But it was defined by the rule of law, governed by the statutes that dictated to the patent office. How would you review patent applications? And we also broke from, so these were all ways in which we broke from England. Um, Because in England, patents, as I mentioned, there there were some statutes that governed it, and they were being adjudicated, as we say in the law. These disputes were being resolved over patents in courts of law. But they were still being issued by the crown, and it was still being viewed very much in this context of a privilege being issued by the (laughs) crown. So, um, so, you couldn't, so it was not a property right in the full sense of the term. So unless the, the privilege grant says you could transfer it to someone, the, de- the default presumption, the, the default rules we say in, in the law, was that you couldn't transfer it because it was a grant to you directly by the crown. Um, whereas in the United States, we took the exact opposite approach. We said the default rule is that a patent is a property right, and So from the get-go, it's, it's transferable in the marketplace. You can do whatever you want with it. Just like a farmer can sell their corn to a wholesaler directly to consumers. They can sell one year. They can sell 10 years. They can sell future rights in their corn. They can use their corn as collateral. This is all the ways in which property serves as a, as, as, as a foundation for people to engage in innovative commercial transactions in the marketplace to grow our, uh, our, our lives, you know, to benefit ourselves individually, and to grow the economy. And, um, and so we from the get-go said, patent should serve the same function that property rights in farms and in, and in, in mills and in other types of assets should serve. Um, and, um, and so inventors immediately did that. Um, and so the inventors in the United States immediately exemplified the principle identified by Adam Smith in The Wealth of Nations in, in, in 1776 uh, when it was published, uh, which is specialization in division of labor. That, you know, inventors said, well, I can invent um, but that doesn't mean I have to be a manufacturer it doesn't, and I don't have to be the wholesaler and also the retailer. I don't have to do everything. We can trade with each other and specialize and, and, and exploit our, our respective capabilities and specialization and maximize value through trade and through division of labor exchanges in what's now called the value chain in manufacturing and, and, uh, and production. And, um, and so very early on, um, there was an active market in the trading and selling of patents in the United States and inventors embraced this division of labor. So people like Charles Goodyear, the inventor of the vo- process for making vulcanized rubber. A lot of people think Goodyear actually made rubber because of the Goodyear tire and rubber company, but Goodyear had nothing to do with the Goodyear tire and rubber company. The company was formed 40 years after he died. He, he didn't hmm. manufacture rubber. He, he licensed and transferred his patent rights to other people to do it. Uh, Elias Howe, the inventor of the lock stitch and the sewing machine, he just licensed his rights to other people. Um, Thomas Edison and Nikola Tesla and all of these people. Nikola Tesla, his, uh, his business model uh, has been characterized as promote, patent, and sell. Meaning promote your invention, get a patent on it, and then sell the patent to, to someone who will manufacture it. So, uh, and, and so this, is, and, uh, you know, this helped further you know, the early economic growth of our country because innovators weren't forced to spend time figuring out how to manufacture and figure out how to transfer and can sell. And you know, f- they didn't have to become the sole person that did everything. They could embrace the division of labor. There's a key difference between the US and England that's been identified by many historians and economists. Now, England eventually realized, oh yeah, like our patents are gonna be more valuable if we allow them to be transferable in the marketplace, like other property rights. So they started putting into the patent grants, well, you can transfer this or sell this in the marketplace if you wish. But that, was, but that had to be expressly provided for. That wasn't the assumption in the nature of the legal grant. And so there was an understanding, well, the crown, but the Crown could always take it back. In fact, that was the rule in England. It was called the Crown's right or the Crown's privilege um, because it was viewed as a grant from the government, from the Crown, then the idea was what the crown giveth, the crown can it away. And so the crown always had a claim to use a patent for whatever purpose or reason that it wanted to do so um, <clears throat> without having to pay and without having to get authorization from the patent owner. In the United States, we took the exact opposite approach. We said, no, these are property rights, like property rights in farms. And the government can't just take your farm. And if they do take your farm, then there's constitutional provisions and law that governs, how and why the government can do that, known as the takings clause in the fifth amendment, right? So the government can only do it under limited conditions and it has to pay you. Um, and in fact, it's in some of the takings cases in the 19th century, that you get some of the more stronger statements about US patents as being property rights and where the courts explicitly distinguish them against English patents in, on these terms. That, you know, here we follow the rule of law and we respect the property rights of, the, of, of innovators and inventors um, in ways that they don't in England and, and, and the rest of the continent. England wasn't unique in this. The, this was standard practice in the rest of the continent. Um, and, this was lar- and, this, and this was largely true for most of the 19th century uh, up and through even the 20th century. Um, other countries uh, often claimed um, what we now call in patent law compulsory licensing, you know, the, 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 just the, the power to take a patent and use it or sell it however they wish um, because it came from the government and they said we could just take it away. Um, and, the, and, and so what you see is the United States was creating in its patent system, the same types of institutions, the same types of doctrines, the same types of rules that it was creating in the re, uh, through, uh, uh, for um, American citizens in all other areas of their life, whether they were creating factories, whether they were building out their farms, whether they were invent, you know, creating banks um, and other types of institutions. In all, those, in all those contexts, they had the rule of law and they had the guarantee of the backstop of due process protections, of constitutional protections, and, um, and the understanding that if we have disputes, they will be resolved by neutral arbitrators and courts who set rules through due process and substantive protection of our rights of life, liberty, and property. And patent owners came, were able to rely upon that as a base assumption. And that's why they were able to type this, why they were freed then and that, uh, to just invent and create and it's why, this is why, you know, as I mentioned, Elias Howe and Charles Goodyear, but Samuel Morris, the inventor of the electromagnetic telegraph, and Samuel Colt, the inventor of the, repeat, the repeating firearm, and, and, I, and Cyrus McCormick, the inventor of the mechanized reaper, um, and, um, and uh, Woolworth, the inventor of the first um, uh, uh, plane um, uh, machine for, you know, for making wood, uh, standardized wood uh, um, uh, and leather products. This is what these, this was all invented and created in the United States in the first 30 or 40 years of the 19th century. Um, And it was a marvel to the rest of the world. Um, And it's what, you know, was part and parcel of what was driving our just massive, explosive innovation economy at that time, Um, the Industrial Revolution that we now call it. Sorry, I'm going on because it's such a cool story about. Yeah, absolutely. So many different, different elements um, of which the patent system was part. It wasn't, it's not all reducible to the patent system because you have to have the rule of law. You have to have, you know, the protection of life, liberty and property. You have to have a settled, you know, institutions, legal institutions that people can rely upon have to you know you have to have general freedom in society it's not like you can build a patent system and that's all you need that's what china is trying to do right now and it'll be interesting to see what happens there they think we have a good patent system that's all we need we don't need rule of law (laughs) we can be still a tyranny um but i no that's not true and so but uh but uh, but definitely the patent system was was very much part and parcel of what historians refer to as american exceptionalism and and what is part and parcel beyond the unique american experience of the 19th century
0: yeah wow um, great. So let's see, uh, we're going to go to audience questions in uh, maybe five or 10 minutes. So if anybody has um, questions for Professor Masoff, go ahead and just put them in the chat. Um, if we, uh, for students of the, uh, the course, um, as always, we have the, uh, the thread in our private Slack and I'll, I'll try to give priority to your questions, but, um, everybody, uh, everybody else just go ahead and kind of, uh, type them into the chat, uh, in the, in the, uh, sorry, in the zoom here, the zoom chat, and, uh, and then we'll get to them in, um, uh, maybe 10 minutes or so. Okay. Um, okay, great. So, uh, I promised in, uh, promoting this that we would talk about, uh, quote unquote, patent trolls. Yeah. So, uh, so let's talk about that. So, what does that term even mean? Uh, what, why do why do people use it? It's obviously a very negative term. And then, you know, is there another way to look at this? Like, do, would, you know, do do, the, do these uh, so called trolls have a um, have an actual you know valuable function?
1: Yes, yes. Of course no. Oh, of course no. We're calling someone a troll is totally positive. Like they're, they're cute and furry. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so uh, clearly it's a pejorative term uh, that, that has arisen in the patent policy debates in the past. It's a relatively you know, new term. It's a it's it's uh it really started to come into vogue um, about uh, 15 years ago. Um, and um and um, I don't like the term and I don't use it. Um, uh, and one, and the reason is um, for the same reason I don't use the term robber bearing, um, is that it's a, it, it, it's a pejorative term that's used in the policy debates by people who have, a, um, either by academics and other scholars and a, uh, activists and commentators who are very critical of the patent system, um, or by companies who have a vested interest in, we- given their current business models and weakening patents, um, because this, uh, it, you know, assists them in their current business models. And so they're pushing this, uh, the, uh, this, pat, uh, this patent control term. But the reason why I don't use it, as I mentioned, is it, ha- is it has the same status as robber baron. Um, you know, it's, as you mentioned, it's pejorative, and it has no subtle definition or meaning. Um, uh, be- and, um, and so it's, very, it's, it's not objective in a sense. Um, <clears throat> the generalized framing of the term uh, to the extent that there is a meaning to it, is anyone who doesn't manufacture their patented invention, right? Um, but as I just described, right, then that means Charles Goodyear was a patent troll, and Elias Howe was a patent troll, and Thomas Edison and Nikola Tesla, because these people didn't manufacture their their inventions; they licensed and sold and engaged in lawsuits with people who infringed their patent rights, um, and um, and so when you posit that to them, they say, oh, well, no, 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 we don't mean them. So we, we mean someone who has a bad patent. And he's like, well, what do you mean by a bad patent? What's a, what's a bad patent? Is that, you know, is that like living on the wrong side of the patent tracks? <laughs> is, that, is it being a bad person? Oh, no, low quality patent. You know, it's probably takes a low, well, what do you mean by that? Because there's no historical or subtle uh, baseline for defining what counts as a quality patent. Um, there's no economic or statistical study that has shown that we have more so-called low quality patents or bad patents issuing today than we did 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, or even 100 years ago. I mean, we couldn't have those studies, even if we wanted to try to f- try to create them because the technology has changed, right? So what makes potentially a, you know, advanced biotech innovation today, a good quality patent or a low quality patent has nothing in com- in, in common with, you know, um, Westinghouse invention on the steam uh, brake uh, for railroads. Um, and, so, and, um, uh, and so, you know, if you hear claims like, well, the patent office is issuing lots of bad patents today. You, one of the questions asked is, well, how do we know that? I mean, people say that, but I mean, you know, people say there were lots of bad robber barons in the 19th century. How do we know that? People say that. Now, are there some bad actors in the patent system? Are there some people who do get, are there some mistakenly issued patents? Of course. I mean, no human institution is going to meet some platonic uh, ideal of perfection. Um, humans are not omniscient. And so we make mistakes and the patent office issues them. And we often hear of the mistakes. Like, you know, there were a patent issued on a method of using a laser pointer to, try, you know, to exercise a cat and a patent on a method of using a tree swing. I mean, these are, I mean, the patent office also issues um, more than 300,000 patents a year. Um, and so then the question becomes, well, are there more of these types of patents issuing now compared to, you know, a hundred years ago when, or, you know, in 1820, we were issuing, you know, I think there were 25, you know, uh, I think there, you know, several hundred patents issued by the PA- U.S. Patent Trademark Office. I don't recall the exact number. I mean, how many of those were bad patents? We don't know. I mean, no one has done these studies because they can't because also the legal standards were different back then. Technology was different back then and just, you know, you're comparing apples to oranges, both legally and technologically. Um, and so, the, so the, the problem here is you have a lot of rhetoric, but no real actual underlying fact-based, evidence-based discourse occurring when you have people talking about patent trolls. Um, and unfortunately, you know, as I mentioned, the term though is used by people who are very skeptical of patents or, very, or, or, um, or have problems with patent system more generally, or by companies who are uh, who have invest- who unfortunately pragmatically have taken a position against patents, and um, and and they're not making these distinctions. They're attacking the patent system more generally with this term. In the same way that people who talk, complain about robber barons aren't you know saying, well, I'm just using this term in a very narrow, limited sense. If someone says to you, well, there were the problem with the robin barons in the nineteenth century, usually what they mean is, well. Capitalists are out of control and they need to be restrained or restricted in some way, shape, or form. It's generally a critical term of capitalism. And, um, and you know patent troll has become a generally critical term of, of innovators where they highlight some of the bad examples of some bad actors, which exist in all areas of law. I teach ca- proper, regular property cases where people abuse their property rights in land vis-a-vis their neighbors. We don't then say, well, there's the problem of land trolls <laughs> um, or, you know, or let me give another example. I support patent trolls in the same way that I support, you know, I'm supportive developers. Developers have a horrible reputation in our country. I myself had a very bad experience with a real estate developer who cost me, um, you know, uh, in this, when I purchased my first condo about $10,000. Well, I did turn around and say, "Well, developers are horrible as, as a whole class of people," and there's a whole category of bad. I mean, I dealt with one bad person, and it's important. It cost me some money, a lot of money back then, because I didn't—I was broke and massively in debt as a law student. But, but, uh, but, um, but I still recognize that developers as a whole—you know—that's a good. Institution uh, we have in society it 's a good bit, that, that, that is a productive value enhancing activity for people to engage in and it 's a legitimate use of their property rights um, because what patent troll, what patent troll rhetoric leads people to do is because the general framing is it 's someone who doesn 't manufacture anyone then who doesn 't manufacture their patent ends up getting swept up in these condemnations um, and so for instance one often hears uh, there 's a very famous study. I shouldn't say one often hears. It's a very famous study. One often hears it within DC in the patent policy debates. Oh, patent trolls cost the US economy $29 billion in costs in 2011. Well, first of all, it was a really bad, horrible study that that failed lots of just basic requirements for doing statistical studies. But what but but you don't even have to get into those details. Their definition of a patent troll included anyone who didn't manufacture a a, a patent. So, who counted as a patent troll according to that the, to those the, to uh mike moyer and jim Besson, the authors of the study um universities because universities don't manufacture their patents they license their patents inventors like elias howe and charles goodyear who don't manufacture who license companies that only license and there are tons of companies who engage in licensing as their business model you know qualcomm and now, now Nokia, which used to make phones, but doesn't, you know, licensing is just commercial exchange. I have a particular technology. I want to be part of the value chain, the, you know, the, uh, in the production of a particular product, I can contribute something. I'll license you to make this, this aspect of it. Um, and, um, and, and also include, and it, the definition included companies that were manufacturing companies that happen to own patents that license those patents outside of their feel outside of their specific licensing or manufacturing practice, which happens all the time. Companies have R&D departments. They come up with interesting inventions and they say, oh, okay, we'll, um, we'll license this to other people. Um, a good example of this, a lot of people don't know this, Microsoft um, for about 10 years made over a billion dollars a year annually in revenue on licensing patents that it had that covered the Android operating system. Microsoft didn't make Android smartphones. It didn't sell Android smartphones. It tried smelling its own failed Windows Phone for a while, um, you know. So, and that got by the definition of those authors, Microsoft was a patent troll. Um, and so you can see the term is, is is it's not an appropriate, objective term. We should be we shouldn't be using it any, a, for the same reasons we don't use robber baron um, and other types of kind of terms that are used non-objectively for rhetorical purposes that aren't rooted in real kind of solid. Evidence-based um, uh, knowledge that we derive from actual situations in the real world.
0: All right, we do have a handful of audience questions now. Um, before we go to them, I want to ask uh, one one last question that I've been asking to a bunch of uh, speakers. Now, this is especially for the uh, the high school students and the, and the teenagers in our audience. Um, what is a what is a piece of advice that is commonly given to to teenagers? uh that you think is actually uh wrong? And what oh. would you replace it with?
1: <laughs> that's a really great question. <clears throat> What's a piece of advice that's commonly given to teenagers that you think is wrong? <clears throat> um you know, what? I, you know, that's a really great question because I don't, um, and I had to think for a moment because I don't interact with teenagers a lot. I, I, I teach graduate students. So, um, and, um, but I'll have some, te- I, I have a teenager myself now. So, <laughs> so, uh, so this, this, this is good that I start, I start thinking about these things. Um, the, you know, I think one of the, uh, a, a very common piece of advice, I think that one often hears, <clears throat> or it's not explicitly made, but it's often implicit is, um, well, what do you want to do with your life? you know, you have to figure out as a teenager, like what your career is going to be, what your passion is. And you can't as a teenager, you can't really even as a, as a young adult, you can't know what you love and what what really drives you until you do it, until you actually engage with the world and undertake some experiences, or at least start to study these issues, you know, and so, so, you know, don't worry too much about like, figuring out like, Oh, what am I going to be doing with my life? And, you know, am I going to be, am I going to be an entrepreneur and do a startup? Or am I, you know, am I going to be going to finance? You know, you know, you may like that, you know, and so pursue it, if you think you might like it, but also be willing to recognize, you know, once you start doing, you may discover actually, no, there's something here about this that I, I really don't like it. And I, I need to change and you should be willing to do that because you can't deduce abstractly. You're not born with a set of values that drive you and inspire you to produce the best work and to wake up every day and say, "I am loving my work and loving my life and ready to go and the only way you discover that value is by taking action in the real world to pursue it and seeing how it feels to you and how and whether it 's something that really means something to you um, and i 'm speaking per, probably from personal experience I changed my my focus in terms of my career goals, three or four times. When I first went to college, I thought I was gonna be, I grew up in the 80s, so I, I was gonna go to Wall Street and become a millionaire by right? <laughs> I'm 30. And, and you know, so I was getting a degree in economics and international affairs. And then I, and then I, and then I realized, oh, no, I don't wanna do that. Um, I'll, um, I really, and then I started to get interested in, in legal philosophy. I took a legal philosophy course, I always loved philosophy. Um, and, um, and it wasn't until I took a legal philosophy course I was like, wow, this is really exciting. This is really cool. So this is what I'll do. I'll do legal philosophy. So I'll I'll be a philosopher specializing in legal philosophy. So I'm going to go into academia. And so, and I pursued that for a very long time, actually. I I got a degree in philosophy and then I went to a PhD program in philosophy. And I was in that for five and a half years before I realized I hate this. (laughs) I hate being in academic philosophy. I'm a slow learner, but I figured it out. (laughs) and And and. And of course, one of the reasons why I figured this out was because I started taking courses in graduate school, in the law school, where I was in graduate school at Columbia. And, it, and I was really enjoying my law professors. And I was really enjoying my interactions with the law students. And I really was not enjoying my, my philosophy professors or my interactions with the philosophy student or my fellow graduate students and a lot of the philosophy students as well. And I realized I'm on the wrong side of the academic divide. I, I, I want to be a law professor. Um, and, and so I switched um in the late 90s uh, uh, i was always planning going to law school to back up my phd philosophy i left a phd program i didn't get a phd um, and but i never looked back and i and i love what i do um, and you know and that's, you just have to be open to realizing and being very sensitive to well you thought you might like this but you don't and that's okay because that's part and parcel of the learning process in fact as a parent, I can tell you the way we learn is by making mistakes, by trying something and not liking it, or making a mistake, and then you now know what you don't like, and that tells you what you do like and what what what's the right way to do something.
0: Cool, that's a great story, and um, echoes a little bit. I think some of the answers we've heard from previous speakers, uh, actually, in terms mm-hmm. of uh, maybe take a little bit longer. Don't don't be in a rush to figure out you know what you want to commit like the rest of your life to. Yeah. Um, Okay, great. So we've got some questions from the audience now. So, uh, so let's go to these. There is a story that uh, in the late eighteen hundreds, uh, somebody who was running the patent office, I think, uh, said that the, the patent office is going to need to shut down soon because there was nothing left to invent. Is
1: yeah. this true? Do you
0: know? Is there a source from this? Or is this a urban? Yeah, it's it's
1: it's a little. It's, it's one of these half truths. It's like yes someone said something like that but not literally (laughs) yeah so uh yeah so there was there was someone in the patent office who said along the lines of like everything is starting our our impression is everything is starting to be invented but he wasn't advocating for it was an off the off the cuff remark and he wasn't advocating for shutting down his patent office he actually they didn't advocate for that (laughs) it's how it's characterized like all the hubris of people they didn't realize that more inventions would be created because they knew that they 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 lived through it at the patent office, um, and in fact, you know, the late nineteenth century is right around the time where we finally, um, we, the scientists finally figure out this space of the chemistry, right? They they finally figure out and, and settle on the periodic table of elements um, as the as as the agreed upon mo- uh, model and the the the, uh, the the and and it becomes accepted scientific knowledge that the atomic model of matter and. So you're just on the cusp now of the pharmaceutical revolution um, because now they understand exactly how molecules work. And so right around this time, you start getting some of the very early first true, real, pharma- valuable uh, pharmaceutical patents that start to issue uh, around the turn of the 20th century. Um, and, you know, and the US is the birthplace for this um, and we, you know, because we provided solid protection for these types of new types of innovations from pharmaceuticals all the way up to computers. We also led the world in protecting computer, uh, computers as well, providing patent protections.
0: That's interesting. I thought a lot of the early uh, pharmaceuticals came out of Germany, right? Bayer, Hex, uh, BASF, these the pharma- sort of German chemical companies.
1: Yes, pharmaceutical inventions um, and patents. And they were getting patents on them as well in Germany. But the U.S. overtakes Germany um, very soon. Um, and I shouldn't say very soon in the 20th century, the U S overtakes, uh, overtakes Germany. So by the time you get to the mid 20th century, a lot of the primary, uh, pharmaceutical innovations are, are occurring in the United States. Mm. And then, um, very significantly, uh, there's a very famous 1980, uh, Supreme court decision called us or diamond V Chakrabarty, where the U S Supreme court says, um, that a genetically modified uh, organism in this case it was a bacteria that had been genetically modified to eat oil. It didn't work but it but it, but it had been modified. it was a patentable invention the patent office originally said no it wasn't because uh, this is a work you know, this is just a natural phenomenon it's a living animal and chakrabarti who was a very famous uh bio uh, re- uh, medical researcher took it all the way to the u.s supreme court the supreme court said yeah no this is an invention this is a this is a valuable creation this is exactly what uh the patent system is designed to promote and secure. And, um, and the U.S. was unique in this because other countries said, no, we are not allowing patenting on life. We're not allowing patenting on patenting on, on these types of early biotech innovations. And the United States stood out from that and said, no, we are. And it's the reason why the biotech revolution happens in the United States, hmm. um, because immediately as a result of, of the U.S. Supreme Court and then, and then uh, issuing this decision as an interpretation of the patent laws, and then the patent office saying, okay, we're open for business. Please submit your patent applications. Venture capital started flowing just by leaps and bounds to biomedical researchers. And, um, and this is universally recognized as one of the reasons why the biomedical revolution occurs in the United States in the 1980s and 1990s is because we were the first country uh, uh, compared to the rest of the world uh, to provide protections in, uh, in this space. Wow.
0: Okay, um, next question, Harry Mullen says he hears the u s patent system has declined, and other countries have better ones. Um, so is that true? Do you agree, and if so, what are the can you summarize the issues:
1: Yes, yeah, so uh, um, yes, you probably heard that from me because <laughs> so, i 've been writing on this and speaking on this in op eds and in my academic work and scholarship and I've been, and these are some of the issues i 've testified before Congress on. So in the past ten or fifteen years, part and parcel of actually, the patent troll policy narrative that has that has really overtaken um, the it has overtaken Congress and the courts and the regulatory agencies. Um, you know, there was there's been a moral panic um, about the patent system in 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 Washington D.C. You know, people think, oh yeah, patent trolls are running rampant and the patent system's broken and innovators can't innovate and everything, and so. Um, Congress has constantly been amending the laws, the patent system laws, uh, to weaken patent rights, to make it harder to get patents, harder to license them, harder to enforce them. The U.S. Supreme Court has been issuing decisions in patent, in, uh, in patent cases at a, greater, at, at a greater rate than we have seen uh, in almost 100 years. Um, and most of these decisions, uh, um, weaken, can eliminate or outright just uh, eviscerate um, patent rights, um, the ability of, of innovators uh, to get uh, um, their patents. So I mentioned the biotech revolution occurring because they said you can get a patent on, on a biotech innovation. Well, uh, under recent U.S. Supreme Court decisions in the past uh, eight years, um, that's now in doubt. Um, and now people who get patents on incredible biotech innovations that you know, treat hepatitis and diabetes and cancer, the same invention. Patents on on these inventions are now issuing in Europe and are even issuing in China. Um, But the U.S. Patent Office is denying patents on these inventions. Um, It's been very hard to, as a result of the patent troll narrative, that there's all these bad patents and bad actors, so we should reduce the ability of patent owners to get their their legitimate legal remedies for when people violate their rights. Um, You can get damages. And so the Value of damages has been, has been reduced significantly, what, you, what a court will, will, will give you as damages, and your ability to get an injunction has has been uh, severely hampered as well. Um, and we've created a whole administrative tribunal at the patent office called the Patent Trial and Appeal Board, it goes by the acronym PTAB, whose sole job is to cancel patents, um, uh, issue patents, and anyone can file a petition from anywhere in the world for any reason um, to cancel a patent. And and, this P, and the PTAT has cancellation rates that have ranged over the past, uh, it was created in 2011 and started hearing cases in 2012. From 2012 to today, cancellation rates have ranged anywhere from 70% to as much as 100%. Um, and so this is severely devalued patents because in the United States, US patent rights have become unreliable and they're not become effective. They've not become a property right that you can point to and say venture capitalist or other company that I want to license with, you can depend on this as a valid, stable property right that we can transact over. Um, or you can, I can use this as collateral to get venture capital funding. Um, and venture capital funding is drying up. The studies are showing in patent intensive na- uh, um, industries, So in the biotech industry, in biopharmaceutical industry, medical device industry, and even in some of the patent intensive areas of the high tech economy and the computer industry, um, you have venture capital shifting away from those areas because They're because they're they're less reliable investments um and this is very significant because as i mentioned china has developed the exact opposite in the past five or six years which is uh you know no one foresaw that that china would develop a a a a very robust and, and, and stable patent system and europe continues to generally protect patents as well as they have after they modeled themselves after the us uh in the 20th century so in a certain sense we're we we are we are in the process of going back to what patents were like under the royal prerogative power, where they're 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 administered through discretionary processes in the administrative state that aren't function under the rule of law, where there's a lot of uncertainty and not and lack of protection and recognition for due process, and lack of pro- core property right protections, um, and and you know over so. They're throwing off all of the elements of the patent system that made it so successful in the United States, and other countries are going the opposite direction. And we live in a global economy, and so venture capital and economic growth will flow to the places where you have stable property rights protections and you have the ability to ground economic activity and, and the foundation of, of property rights. So it's a real it is it's a real concern. And the problem with the patent system is that you don't see. The, the, the harm from weakening our patent system isn't tomorrow. It's 10 years from now, or for modern biopharmaceutical companies, their, their timeline of investment is 15 to 20 years. So the problem is we'll, it, so it won't be until the, later in the 2020s that we see the byproducts of this. And by then, no one will connect it with what happened 20 to 30 years earlier with the weakening of our patent system, unfortunately.
0: Um okay, great. We've got just a couple of minutes left, so um I'm gonna skip around and see if we can get maybe one or two more questions in. Um Tom Gilb mentions that his father had a hundred patents, but said that patents don't give real industrial protection because it's too easy for someone to patent a small variation. And therefore your real protection is fast deployment. Uh what do you what do you think about this?
1: Um so, it so yes and no. I mean, so yeah, you can. Um, I mean, and and I would have to understand what the patents are because in some contexts it's not true, in other contexts it is. Um, so, pioneering patents, foundational patents, can't. There are no variations. So, Alexander Graham Bell, when he invented the telephone, I mean, he had total control over the entire telephone industry because there was no other way to have operate telephones other than by modulating the frequency of the, of, of the, of the. Uh, of the sound waves. Um, and, um, and so if you're talking about like you yourself are engaging in incremental innovations, they're published, people can read the patents and then they can do something called designing around which they can make compete competing products in the marketplace that are distinct from and separate from, but nonetheless they themselves can get a patent on it as well. Then, then that's, that's what happens in the marketplace, right? This is, this, is, this is part and parcel of what property rights promote and secure. You, you create a school it's really successful. Someone can look at what you did and say, "That's a really successful school. I want to create a successful school too. I'm going to model it after yours, right? I'm going to copy it." And this happens, right? First, there was Coke, then there was Pepsi, <laughs> and then there was Tab, and then there was, and then there was gener- other generic sodas, right? Um, and um, <clears throat> uh, so, um, so it's a little. I, I don't. I mean, it depends on what you mean by the particular types of technology, and the particular types of invention, and the different types of business models, and the particular sector of the economy in which you're working with. And in fact, where you have inventions or an innovative work where you don't have large-scale R&D that's necessary to produce a product, and there's fast development of the products and processes. Typically, patents are not relying on as business models uh, in, in those contexts. Uh, they rely on other types of IP interests, like trademark and, tra- uh, and even copyright. Um, so, um, because they, that accommodates the different types of economic activity that you're engaging in in this, in this space. And this is the important point to recognize. Pat, pat, patents aren't the be all end all. They function as property rights for a certain type of value you, someone creates with a certain type of business model and a certain type of, of sector of the economy. And for other types of business models and other types of uh, sectors of the economy and other types of values, you want other types of IP rights. And the important point is to have all of them there the different types of innovative and creative labors that people are engaging in.
0: Great. Okay. Um, let's uh, sneak in maybe one last really quick one. Hopefully, um, book recommendations about the history of patents. What? Oh. what you
1: <laughs> so um, you know, um, there are not a lot of really kind of just general audience, uh, lay audience books that have been written uh, about the patents about patents. Um, there are some really interesting like history books um, like the book by Serena Khan, the Democratization of Invention uh, <clears throat> uh, which, it, which highlights some of these aspects of the historical differences between the US and other countries that I talked about um, you know but that's an ac- that's published by Cambridge University Press it's, it's an academic book. Um, you know something that I do because I love what I do is I read books on inventors and innovators all the time and almost all biographies of the great inventors and innovators have sometimes whole chapters, if not multiple chapters, on the patent system in there, because they engage with the patent system. You know, Goodyear did, and, and, and Thomas Edison did, and Isaac Singer did, and, and Samuel Colt did, and Samuel Morse did. And so really what I, I would recommend, and I have, and I have lists on, 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 on the internet in various places, and I can share generally with Jason, is I've listed just cool books on the development of the history of technology and innovation. But there is one book that I would recommend and that is um, the, mo- the most powerful idea in the-, in the world. And I'm blanking on the author's name, Jason. I see. Rosen,
0: Will- William yeah. Rosen.
1: Yeah. It's an excellent book that melds the history of science, technology, politics, and patents. Um, and I think it tells a very compelling and interesting historical story of the evolution of the patent system in, uh, in England in the 17th and 18th centuries. Um, and-, and he's right about England compared to other countries and how England had a better patent system compared to other countries. And then we did even better. <laughs> I'm happy to answer more questions if people would like to stay.
0: Um, okay. Yeah, sure. Let's uh, let's just take just a couple of minutes. And obviously if anybody has to go, um, I, uh, you, you go ahead, but uh, maybe we can get in uh, one or two last questions. So let's see. Um, so Trey Knighton asks a question about whether patents are more or less important today versus say, 40 years ago. He points out that in the age of information and telecom, uh, there's a much larger customer base for new inventions, but also more people can copy an invention. Uh, R&D is a higher percentage of uh, of, of costs. Um, he, he suggests that more of what consumers consume is non-rival. So how does, that all, how does this contribute to patents being more or less important?
1: So it's a, it's a really great question because one of the really cool things about patents and one of the reasons why I wanted to do patent law is because patents are about protecting new innovations on the cutting edge of human knowledge of technology and a business. Um, because a lot of patent owners also innovated commercial uh, um, enterprises and business models. So like for instance, I, uh, Isaac Singer invented the uh, sale leaseback model um, and um, um, <clears throat> And Samuel Morse and many others uh, innovated the franchise business model through licensing of their patents and other IP interests. Um, so, um, and I, I can tell you when you read the history of these, these individuals and what they were doing, people were saying the exact same thing then. And because if you could think about it, right, in the early 19th century, right, when we now had you know, transmitting information by electricity. So up until that time for all of human history, information only tra- was transferred at speed of horse for sale in boats, right? And now you could actually send an, a message across the ocean by the 1860s that took just a matter of minutes, right? Um, you had massive commercial enterprises that existed in the 19th century. They didn't exist 50 years before. Um, you know, the you know, uh, Singer sewing machine company was the first multinational corporation in the United States. It was, they were selling more sewing machines in Europe in the 1860s than they were in the United States. Um, in fact, the largest factory in the United States in the 1870s was a Singer sewing machine factory in, in, in New Jersey. I mean, so at every point in time, right, you have all of this new commercial activity, new creation of, com- of, of commerce, of commerce, uh, of, of customer bases, new, new methods of making money, new business models. Um, you, know, the, you know, we now know the internet. The internet is ma- another massive revolution of the type that we went through with the Industrial Revolution. Um, and so you have to be careful not to be too um, tied to the particular unique aspects of your particular era. because. When you think about it, every era has been unique compared to the era that came before it in terms of speed of transmission of information, the technol- technological base, the ability which people can make and innovate uh, money, money, and other types of activities in our society. Um, and so, so, but you do hear very oftentimes, especially in the context of, of the high tech industry or a portion of the high tech industry, the Silicon Valley uh, uh, portion, um, the internet-based portion, like, well, patents are this outmoded. Mode of protecting innovation because we don't we don't really need it now we have other methods of making business well that's not true uh, for all the high tech industry or of all innovations today um, in fact there is even in the high tech industry there are many in- inventions in the high tech industry that require hundreds of millions if not billions of dollars to create through R and D uh, one example is the is the digital transmission technology in your smartphone the 4G 5G 5G took Qualcomm uh, about 12 years and billions of dollars to invent. Um, and they need patents. They need patents to secure to them the, the fruits of their labors, their productive labors over all of that time to license now the technology because they don't manufacture anything. They license the technology that they invented the in 5G, 4G, 3G um, to, uh, to, to companies like Samsung and Apple and other companies that make smartphones. Um, also, companies that make you know, enterprise software systems um, you know, in, invest lots of, uh, of money to create these types of uh, innovations. The average cost of, of, the, of a single drug, the, uh, so the average cost of R&D that's, that, that is represented by a single drug that is approved by the FDA to be, to be sold to patients in the healthcare market is $2.6 billion in R&D expenditures. Not behind that one single drug, because that one single drug represents about 10,000 molecules that the pharmaceutical company originally started researching and were dry wells. Didn't, they didn't lead to anything. And then it represents all the testing that they have to do and the development of uh, the mechanisms for delivering it into your body, which are all innovative as well. It's a real. It takes about $2.6 to billion total in R&D, some cost, and 10 to 12 years on average to come up with a successful therapeutic drug treatment sold in the healthcare market. Um, and even out of that, then uh, one out, only one out of four of those actually makes enough money to pay that back and pay for the ongoing R&D that they're doing. So, it, so it's not true even in, in the, the generally, because there's still lots of industries that require Patents for these types of significant upfront ex ante R and D expenditures and licensing business models, but it's not even necessarily true in the high tech industry. Now, in the in portions of the industry where it is, they don't rely upon patents. So, social media companies, certain internet type companies, they have business models that don't rely upon patents. If you're an app developer, you don't need patents, right? It, it doesn't take two six point billion dollars to create the Flappy Bird app, right? So, and that's a good thing. That's why we get the Flappy Bird app, right? Um, uh, so, um, but they, notice, they rely on other intellectual property, right? So, like, so very, very famously, the, uh, the creator whose name I'm blanking on at the moment of Angry Birds, the Angry Birds app, famously, oh, I don't need intellectual property because I didn't need it to create Angry Birds, which was true, right? But what he meant by intellectual property was patents, because when people started copying Angry Birds, boy, did he start suing a lot of people for trademark infringement. So what he was relying upon was the protection of the corporate goodwill that he created with his customers and the important aspects of that value that was secured to trademark. And if people copied his code directly, he could sue them for copyright infringement as well. And so again, the important point is to recognize not, uh, that IP intellectual property is not the same thing as patents, patents is just one part of a whole uh, buffet of different types of legal protections for different types of innovative and creative labors, and. And you have appropriate protections in the relevant context. And this is true of property rights generally. We have property rights in water and property rights in air and property rights in personal property, chattels, like your phone or your car or your scooter, property rights in land, right? And all of these property rights are different. They're very different from each other. They have different types of protections, different types of limitations and liabilities. Um, In fact, this is why I spent a whole four months teaching just property uh, in my my law school. So so the thing to recognize is that even the variation of intellectual property protections that we classify in this broader category, is just still part and parcel of the variation of property right protections more generally across the board. In fact, there are some very interesting correlations I've written on this uh, between kind of the types of legal protections in water um, which is called riparian rights and patent rights because water rights are also non-rivalrous and in some respects non-exhaustive. You know, a stream is flowing. Um, you can take buckets out of it and it doesn't, lim- doesn't make it less of a stream for other people to take buckets out of it or to use it. Um, and multiple people can use it at the same time without being in conflict with each other. And, 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 and interestingly enough, the legal type of legal rights that you get in water a similar type to the types of legal rights you have in patents as well, because there are different types of values that people are creating in these different types of resources.
0: Okay, great. Maybe we can get in one more. Um, so uh, on uh, what well, we won't call them Patrick uh, uh, patent trolls, on non-practicing entities, <laughs> uh, Patrick Holmes points out that the, uh, an issue with them is uh, that they often approach companies and extract nuisance value of a patent suit uh, for patent reads that are a stretch yeah. uh, since patent suits are very expensive. The nuisance value they can extract is sometimes large. And this is a drag on the industry. What do we do with right. that? So
1: the last claim is a non sequitur from the, from from the prior premises. So yes, there are, um, there are some bad actors in the patent. I don't deny that one company MPHA, that was the company that was sending all the patent demand letters to the to the mom and pop coffee shop saying, you're violating our patent on a Wi-Fi patent. And by the way, they got sanctioned uh, for uh, deceptive trade practices because they were lying in these, 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 their demand letters because their, their patent was no longer valid. <laughs> uh, they weren't providing the, the necessary information to even find the patent in their demand letter. And it was, I mean, this was, this was fraudulent activity. Um, and this is why we have fraud laws. This is why we have decept- and laws, legitimate laws, not even, I mean, a lot of times this is channeled through antitrust, unfortunately, but you know, there's common law protections against fraud and, 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 uh, and what's, what the common law is called unfair competition, deceptive competition practices and things of this sort. There's rules in the patent system to address this as well. Um, uh, that prevent people from engaging in improper uh, use of invalid or unnecessary or bad patents. And you can invalidate patents. You're, uh, uh, you, that's why all defendants have the ability to do so. Or you can do your own investigation, find the patents invalid, and you're like, well, I'm just going to ignore this. And they can sue me if they want, because they know they're going to lose. And that happens a lot too. Um, now, This happens in the patent system, just like it happens that, you know, guy, the old men chase children off of their property with lead pipes. That happens too. I have cases that I teach my children about that, or my children, my students about that, my professional children. And (laughs) and, uh, um, so, but we don't then say, oh, old men with pipes are a drag on our economy because they're abusing their property rights. They might be, if we can, you know, you know, maybe we need to develop doctrines, new doctrines and new issues to address that. But this is what I'm trying to say is that we have a lot of claims and assertions by this, but we don't have actual evidence. There's, there's no agreed upon objective uh, uh, foundation. Um, you know, there's a lot uh, that establishes that actually there is a systemic problem with patent trolls That's never been established. What you have are anecdotes, and anecdotes is a type of evidence, but you then can't infer from a couple stories of, of bad actors Systemic problems then you can say this is quote a drag on innovation because this is no different because there are bad lawsuits in every area of law there are hundreds of thousands of lawsuits over land every year in this country and a lot of and, and a lot of them are ridiculous right they involve silly disputes between neighbors um, now is that a Do we then say, oh, this is a drag on our economy. We need to rethink about whether we protect property rights and land and how people can sue. And we need to make it harder for people to sue for trespass or nuisance and things like that. Well, we haven't done that because no one's ever shown, actually, there is a problem, a systemic problem, with people abusing their property rights and land. Um, And we should should apply the same empirical standards, database standards, to our assessments of the patent system. and our default premise should always be, remember the patent system is a valid good system. And we need to be careful because there's a lot of rhetoric and there's a lot of arguments made by people who are inherently patent skeptics. They're patent skeptics before the patent troll narrative came around and they just said, ooh, here's a really cool narrative I can use to continue to push my general attacks on the patent system as such. And we're seeing this today with the COVID-19 pandemic. Starting in February, there were activists, um, you know, and academics like Mark Lemley and others who were saying, "Oh, we have to get, we have to restrict patent rights here because patents are a blockade to me- to medical treatments being developed. So, you know, we have to come up with an open patent pledge." Uh, and we have to, and, and we have to have the government exercise what's called a march-in power to actually confiscate patents. People were saying this in February, before there were even any treatments. <laughs> no treatments at all yet, right? Um, and you know, and it's because they're you, you, know, it's they're they're following the, the famous maxim by um, uh, um, God. I'm sorry, I'm blanking on his name. Um, uh, Chief of staff of Obama back in 2009 during the Great Recession. He said, "Never let a never let a crisis go to waste," right? Um, and if there's not a crisis, create a crisis. Right. I mean, this is this is how a lot of emergencies and crises are a lot, a lot of ways in which, you know, you know, bad legislation and bad laws are passed to infringe upon our rights and to restrict the ability of people to exercise their rights of life, liberty and property, property, including intellectual property. And we need to be sensitive to that context.
0: All right, great. We really do need to wrap up. Um, Adam, if people want to follow, uh, you and your work or, uh, or learn more about you, where, you know, do you want to give your website or Twitter or whatever you're.
1: Preferred, uh... <laughs> so they certainly follow me on Twitter. Um, I, I have Adam Mossoff Um, and, um, in fact, I do on this date in innovation history because people are oblivious to actually how much patents underlie everything in our society, from our coffee machines to our screwdrivers to our automobiles. They think it's just you know—they think it's just drugs and smartphones. Um, in fact, today, for instance, is the anniversary in 1902 of John Browning getting his patent on the, his, his very famous semi-automatic uh, pistol, the you know, the Browning 1911 or Colt 1911 45-caliber pistol. And today is also the anniversary of uh, of um, of the uh, the patenting of the the modern submarine um, by uh, John Holland, which he built for the Navy. Um, And I think it was 1910 that he got it, I believe. So I post this on my Twitter account, um, you know, and also. I don't have a website per se. Um, I'm on, uh, I sometimes share things on LinkedIn, but most mostly I share a lot of my writings and activities and other types of stuff going on in the patents and innovation space uh, on Twitter. And you can also go to ssrn.com. Um, and it's linked to in the bio for, this, uh, for our event here, um, where I put up, I post all my articles. Um, I'm a professor, so I want my articles to be read. So, <laughs> so uh, I post all my articles um, and I also post amicus briefs and letters to Congress and my congressional testimony and other things that I, I've done as well there.
0: All right. Great. Uh, and uh, if you want to follow me, um, I'm on Twitter at Jason Crawford, and my website is rootsofprogress.org. If you want to learn more about progress studies for young scholars, our high school program, go to progressstudies.school. And uh, Adam, thanks so much for taking the time today. This is a great conversation. Thank you.
1: And I really quickly want to say too, and you always feel that you email me. Um, you know, uh, I know that's kind of old school these days, <laughs> emailing, but, uh, but feel you email me. I'm always happy to point you to resources or answer a quick question if anyone has one. Love, love it.
0: Great, very generous. Thanks so much, Adam. Have a great day, everybody. Thanks for joining us. A lot of fun. Take care.